Welcome to the Product Design Podcast. I'm your host, Seth Coolen, founder of UX Cabin, where we create world-class web and mobile apps. I'm excited to bring you a behind-the-scenes look into the lives of some of the most interesting and talented people in product design. We'll get strategic advice on how they got to where they are today and things they wish they would have known earlier in their career. Hey, welcome to the Product Design Podcast. Today, we have an exciting guest, Jason Garrison. He's a UX researcher at Answer Lab. Jason also happens to be my best friend of about 20 years. We went to high school and college together, and so we have lots of memories and history together, and it is a blast to have you on here today, man. Yeah, excited to be here, and that's true. We do have a lot, a lot of stories, some good, some terribly bad. Yeah. <laughs> excited to do this with you. The good thing is we were talking about stories Jason might bring up. And the only saving grace I have is for every one story he has <laughs> embarrassing about me. I think I have two for him. So we'll, we'll keep him at bay today for... Uh, two most probably conservative. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> but yeah, man, why don't you tell us a little bit more about who you are and what you do? Yeah. So I'm a UX researcher as far as what I do for work. I work currently at Answer Lab, which is a UX research agency. And yeah, I think we're going to talk a little bit more about how I got into it. But I started out my professional life as a teacher and I taught for a few years and was really interested in social studies and just human behavior. And it's kind of not until the end of university years until I stumbled on sociology and anthropology. And it was just, I've always been really fascinated by how people live and, you know, celebrate and cry and mourn and, and all of that, just understanding why people do what they do. I was in kind of this like social studies education path, but it quickly got connected into more of a people research path and I spent a few years in Malaysia working for a nonprofit and we were doing some research with the people group there that they were refugees and stateless people. So I was doing some kind of cultural anthropology and getting to connect, like understanding people with actually serving them. And there was some like kind of concrete connection there. So I really liked that. And when COVID came along, I, came to an end. And that's when I discovered UX. But I, I like to think that there's continuity in the like, just enjoying understanding history and understanding like, how people live and writing and reading a lot of my personal reading is about that. So parents yeah. are both teachers. So I think I grew up kind of with that lens. Yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of people who get into UX, they come to the realization that like, wow, a lot of the stuff that I was doing for my job actually really, really, really correlates to UX. And I think you were on like the deep end of like sociology and cultural understanding in research when it's it's more so for either like political reasons or economic reasons for your research. When uh, UX is traditionally in the form of like an app or a website or a you know web-based service or something like that. Yeah. I, I like thinking about UX like people think about maybe like the Wild West or a place that's just coming into being where, you know, early on in maybe a tumbleweed town, you'd have a just collection of a few people doing everything that's necessary to keep the town running. But UX is kind of just like the digital version of everyday life and that there needs to be an understanding of like what people's needs are what their pain points are and what frustrates them. And being a part of UX, I think at first I saw it as this like innovative space, like, oh, if you know the latest XYZ or if you are able to create the most unique whatever, that's UX. And now that I've had a little bit of time here, it's like, oh no, I think there's a lot of just kind of a trying to apply common sense and trying to be empathetic to most people and the types of frustrations that they have to go through. So it's, it's cool in that way. Like every discipline that you would find in the regular world, you'll probably find some representation of it in UX. 
Yeah. So yeah, you know, fast forward or rewind and fast forward to kind of when you were coming to the end of your work in um, Malaysia, you know, I know we were having talks and you were kind of like, yeah, I'm, you know, it, the future's really open. I don't really know. Maybe I'll continue doing this. Maybe I'll go back to teaching. I'm open to anything. I would really like to, you know, just kind of explore all my options. And I know we kind of started talking about UX and there's probably been like three dozen people, you know, that have asked about UX from like my, you know, personal circle and wanted to like learn more about it and think like, oh, maybe this is a, a cool thing for me. So, you know, kind of gave you some like some videos or tutorials to look at and, you know, just thinking like, I wonder where this will go. And you can, you can probably give a, the recap better, but yeah, after that you came back and you're like, yeah, this is great. What What's next? <laughs> yeah, that's, no, that's great. Yeah. So I was doing something that I really, really enjoyed. The craft of what I was doing was really fun. I was getting to understand people and kind of pass along information about them that was helpful for other people that were designing like language services or livelihood services for them. And I, I really enjoyed that work. But during COVID, a lot of the expats had to leave the country. So I was one of those and I came back and I was thinking like, how do I build momentum here? And one option that I have had was like, I could go and get a PhD and try to get, not that I could have gotten a PhD, but it was a path that I was trying to explore. And essentially what it looked like was, you know, seven to nine years of very political kind of gerrymandering, always trying to fight for your survival and being on a very thin budget and having your work be really restricted by, you know, whoever, whatever professor or board you had over you. And at the time, I really wanted to continue studying and continue learning in that direction, but it just looked like that was it, a non-starter. So yep. I just didn't have the time or, or energy to do that. At that time that I was kind of evaluating this, you were saying like, hey, well, UX is here if you ever want to give it a dabble. And it's never a bad time to understand a little bit more behind what's in a website and how to be able to speak that language. And it's a skill that's good to have. So yeah, I took your advice. I interned there at UX Cabin and, and went through like a several courses on just UI and UX. Got familiar with the basics. Really and enjoyed it. To interject, Jason really is the reason for the inception of the internship program. Because, you know, thinking about this, it was like, Jason was like, yeah, you know, would love to dabble a little bit more. And I'm like, okay, like we could, we could probably figure out something to like give you a, a kind of an end-to-end -end survey course. And then you, you know, you kind of brought up the idea of like, be really cool to like do this with other people for camaraderie, for accountability, for, you know, what have you. And then it was like, oh, well, maybe there's, maybe there's an opportunity here for an internship. Like maybe people would want to do this. Maybe this would be interesting to more people than just you. And like turned out it was extremely interesting to a lot of people and very popular. And we still get emails to this day, almost on a weekly basis of wanting to know when the next internship is. But yeah, tell a little bit about the internship and your experience with it. Mm -hmm. That's great because I'm still in contact with some of the interns that I went through the program with. And that was a really fun time. I mean, it was drinking through a fire hose because a lot of the terms were just unfamiliar to me. It's like, I think that's the biggest barrier to entry with UX is just the language that people use to describe day-to-day -day operations yeah. and once you once you understand kind of the lingo and the technical jargon it becomes pretty simple to sort out like where your priorities can be used and you know where you can provide value and where you enjoy building so yeah that internship was great i enjoyed the ui elements of it i really enjoyed like understanding just about color palettes and just spending time in daily ui like building things. And that was, that was very cool to kind of demystify the process of what visual design is. 
when we got to components on Figma, I think that's where the wheels came off for me. <laughs> that because they, you went into UX research for a reason, right? It was, you know, we all have our strengths and weaknesses, so yeah. it's fine. And yeah, major props to anyone whose strengths is Figma components and is a special skill set. That was really, that was difficult. So no, as I was in this internship, I was listening to this podcast. It was called Anthro to UX. And it was a guy who had a very small community at that time. It's grown since then. But at that time, it was like a couple hundred people and there was a Slack channel and there were like several different like groups and they would have like these online meetings. And I just did what I could to try to get with people that had similar backgrounds and interests to me. And over time, it just started to clarify like, oh, there's actually... This isn't a separate path. There's actually a place for anthropology and understanding people in like an applied way on through like at that time, everything was distant. Now I'm doing a little bit more in-person research, but at the time it was just like all through in-depth interviews and things like that. But it was really cool to me to see oh, within this world that I considered kind of foreign to me and maybe unaccessible, like where I didn't maybe have a foot in the door. It was cool to see many people who were just like me, who formed their own little community and were sharing jobs, sharing opportunities, sharing best practices. And I just kind of joined them. It was not like glamorous or graceful for about a year and a half there, more like a year. But after about a year, I felt like I had understood enough about the landscape and the language to be able to speak to, you know, where I wanted to go. I had some really helpful, yourself included, a couple women really helped me with understanding how to orient my LinkedIn and my portfolio and how to prepare for interviews. I had another uh, couple of colleagues at Rocket that just did a great job of helping me understand like corporate politics and like where I fit in and what the difference between agency and in-house and work is. And I mean, all of that kind of is what you learn over a year of kind of scrapping to, to understand that landscape. Yeah. No, I think your, your journey is super helpful for a number of reasons because you kind of got a mix of so many different things kind of like right after our internship at UX Cabin. Pretty soon after you were able to land another internship, which was really exciting and cool and, and awesome. And you, you ended up being there for a while, probably, probably longer than you wanted to be initially, at least as an intern. But maybe you can kind of talk us through the process of like how you got that internship and then like to how you kind of grew in that and things that you learned and realized along that path before you actually got hired as a full-time actual X researcher at Answer Lab. Yeah. This is fun to talk about. Kind of takes me back. The first thing, like I said, is just learning the language. And you had given us a pretty comprehensive like walk through all the different parts of X. And I think what was really good for me there was to treat it as like self-directed learning and not for anyone else. I wasn't doing this for a test or to yep. like please anyone. I was legitimately trying to absorb just as much as I could about, you know, what is a wireframe and what is the high fidelity and a low fidelity prototype that, I, you know, all of those afternoons of working together on things, they gave me a little window into different aspects of UX. One thing that I think is really important is the order that you go in and I feel a little bit fortunate, but now that I'm in a role that I think fits me and is fair for me and I'm able to contribute well, I looking back, I'm really glad that I went in the sequence that I did because I started out in a very low pressure internship. And I think maybe the temptation is to like try to get to the biggest name that you can get to like right away. And I think having a low key space for me to be able to learn. So this, if I was doing it again, I might do this in combination with something else, maybe learn as I'm working another job or something mm -hmm. and take 
you know, your 60 to 90 days to understand just what certain words mean so that you can follow along. And then after that, I was in a lot of Slack channels. So I was able to kind of understand enough to say what I thought I wanted and just kind of market like these are the areas that I'm interested in. So once I got that more, I, I interned at Rocket Mortgage and I was able to work with a lot of really talented people at Rocket that were super helpful to kind of have one-on-ones with me, have coffee chats with me. And I just used that internship as like, again, a way to absorb as much as I could. And at the time, I really thought that I wanted to be brought on at Rocket. Yeah. And that didn't end up happening. And now looking back, I don't think it had anything to do with my work. I think it had everything to do with the fact that we're going through a global real estate-like change. And Rocket itself is obviously affected by that. And so the, the design ops team and the research team, of course, is affected by that. And as a UXer, it's just important to remember that like sometimes doors close, but it's not your performance or your ability. It's just the industry that you're in or the, the budget or the performance of your individual organization. And so I kind of learned that lesson, but I had a lot of people at Rocket who were very patient with me to kind of help me understand like, there's a lot that you have in your toolkit. Don't hang it all on whether or not, you know, this turns into something long-term for you. And that set me up to just have really good ongoing and not, not burn any bridges. You have like great collaborative relationships with people at Rocket who I've seen now, you know, in different areas and on different projects. So yeah, I'm contracted for a bit. I was just a, a general contractor. I, I got with an agency and... Then I was finally like making enough to survive. That was kind of like one plateau, which was nice because it was a, a year in the desert. <laughs> and it was nice to just be able to make a fair living, but I still wanted to be able to do something that was an area of focus for me, something I enjoyed. So then I was applying while I was contracting and I found Answer Lab. It's a research agency, so we have a lot of revolving work, a lot of chances to get in different projects, a lot of chances for you as a researcher to kind of carve out a space to bring your past and say, this is what I'm good at. This is what I'd like to do. These are the trainings that I'd like to go to. And AnswerLab is great about empowering you and it's AnswerLab's success for us to be growing and successful. So I'm really glad to be in an environment like that now. That's awesome. I think we were obviously having conversations as to like, what's the next step after Rocket? Like, can you get on there? I know we were talking about it's like, just stay there a year. Like just having that experience that you can just like point to, like is going to help give you a springboard to wherever you go next, even if it's not at Rocket. And this might be a little bit of a hot take. Maybe we, you know, talk about this for a second, but I think we were talking also about like, in a lot of these bigger companies, it's almost like the interview is, it's really hard to get your foot in the door. And the interview is almost harder than the work that you'll be doing, right? So maybe if you feel comfortable, you can speak to some of your strategies for either interviewing or how to get your foot in the door and then how to be productive once you're in. I think there's a lot of hidden knowledge around like, navigating interviews and presenting yourself and how to do it in a way that these big corporate companies like. Yeah. One thing that I utilize that I think is really what was a good call was working with another agency, like working with a recruiter. There are a few things that I'll say, but the reason that that's important is I did a lot of interviewing. And so if you're in an interviewing season, if you're able to get interviews on your calendar and be in practice, there was a point where I was doing three, four interviews a day. And, and a lot of UXers that have been through that process know, you know, what I'm talking about. But there's a time where after, after a couple of days of that, after a couple of weeks of that, you start to get really comfortable. And if you can kind of keep your head and you can know what you have to offer, you can anticipate what the questions are. You can feel really comfortable. And I think that is very important. Just being able to speak to your skill and your interests and how it applies to the team's problems they're trying to solve 
I mean, of course, there's the often said, like, probably not best to spend all of your time just applying to a thousand, you know, just buckshot jobs. It's probably best to try to pursue some that you're really interested in, tailor your resume and portfolio to the problems that they're trying to solve for, and then following up with people that work at that company, seeing if you you have anything in common that you can talk about or that you can you can understand. And then joining communities of others that are job searching. I found that a lot of people that I worked with in the time past, even in the few years that I've worked in UX, it's kind of a small community and you find people that you've worked with in the past. And it's great to be able to pass along opportunities as well as when I was searching, like pick people's brains. And so I think Slack is a great place to do that. There are lots of Slack communities for individual columns, verticals within UX. So yeah, I think socialize it, do it a lot. And then aside from getting practice, once you're in a place where you feel like you're comfortable in the actual interview session, then zoning in on a few companies that you really want to work for and and really try to put all your eggs in a few baskets as opposed to just applying everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. I think another good strategy that you did, kind of like you mentioned, is like contracting for a bit, right? Because it's like from a company's perspective, especially an agency's perspective, like as work fluctuates, goes up and down, agencies have very, you know, expanding and contracting needs. And it's a really low risk for them to try out a project with you. You you just kind of have to show like, I'm at least competent enough for you to take a little bit of a chance here on me. So I think like, yeah, maybe that's a strategy for some people out there. It's like, if you can't get that full-time job, maybe you can just reach out to a, you know, a bunch of local agencies and just be like, Hey, if you just like need like five hours a week, here's, you know, here's what I can do. And it seems like that's something that you guys do and I can offer. And then maybe you get hired from them eventually after they see your work. Yeah. Yeah. I, I contracted, I think in three different places and I've never felt like it wasn't an option to, you know, to convert to full time. It's always felt like it's there for you. If you're competent and show up on time. Yeah. Getting in the door is tough, but a lot of times the actual work that you're doing is it's what you're trained to do. And if you take the time to get a decent foundation, one other thing that I would say, this is just generally, I, I don't know if it's tailored to UX, but Sitting down with someone who knows what the recruiters are going to be sifting through is so important. And I had someone work with me just on my LinkedIn and portfolio to kind of like align industry language to what I was trying to describe. Because when you just describe yourself, I think there's, you have in your mind the message that you're trying to get across, but it's really important to speak in terms that can be understood by recruiters and by companies. And sometimes you have to take the ego hit to not say it in the words that you want to say it, but letting someone say like, what you're trying to say is this and what a recruiter is going to hear is this. So maybe change this. Yeah. Maybe you can also talk about if there is an interview for a process that's kind of different from contracting to full-time, like I know that you worked at some bigger companies when you were contracting. Was that like a screening team interview, lead interview, like did you, were you kind of put through the ringer or was it kind of a quicker process for you? The contracting interviews are, are pretty quick. I think they happen. You have maybe a team interview to understand just chemistry. And then you have a quick interview, maybe with a research manager or some other manager. And, and there might be others on that call. Generally for contractors, it feels like The team is really focused on one thing, which is why they would bring on a contractor in the first place. So if you're able to anticipate what they're talking about, trying to understand, you know, this particular segment for the upcoming quarter, it takes a little bit of agility. But if you're, if you have a good kind of UX research, like if you have that language, you can kind of tie what they're saying into what your skills are. Interviewing for a company I found is a lot more intense. It's, you know, 
four, five, sometimes up to seven rounds of interviews. You'll be given like a mock problem. And for UX research, generally, I think they're trying to judge what your your demeanor is in an interview. Are you able to confidently execute and moderate a user interview? And then they'll have another maybe take-home project where it's your job to kind of, within a certain amount of time, there's a client, they want to know something and you need to develop a method and a research plan and a moderator guide if it's a round of interviews to be able to extract the information that would help the client. Usually it's not that difficult. Usually the the problems that I've gotten are pretty straightforward, but I think, again, understanding like what methods go with what problems is it's pretty early on, but you should do that before you try to land your dream position. Yeah, no, that's fantastic advice and insight. That's like kind of going in blind. You don't know it's like when, when their hiring timetable is, you don't know how many people you're going to have to talk to. Like a lot of companies, it's like you're just interviewing to get screened to be like available. And then it's like, they may tell you, okay, you could be a part of any one of these three teams and you have to go through a process with those teams after you're like initially screened or whatever. I think we all think it's like, oh, I'll interview and then I'll get an offer letter next week. And it's like, typically it's going to be a little bit, little bit of time if these companies are medium or large companies. Yeah. Yeah. So for those who don't know, Answer Lab is what probably one of the bigger research agencies around. What's it like working at such a big agency? Yeah. It's funny you use the word big because it doesn't feel very big. AnswerLab has a very like family style culture. I guess family is not right, the right word to use, but it's a research agency that it started very small. The founder is really involved. She's very vocal and she's involved in our, you know, weekly team meetings. And you can tell before COVID, there were a lot of events. You see pictures of you know, team events. And so it's, it's this kind of fun, pretty, pretty close environment. We get contracted by clients, a lot of Fortune 500 clients to do all different types of research. So I'm a qualitative researcher and I really enjoy doing ethnographies, which is where I'll be doing contextual inquiry or I'll embed in a certain situation and I'll have to come up with a plan of how to ask different questions and how to get at specific kind of observational points that help us understand a group of people or a situation better. I'll do rounds of in-depth interviews. I'll do diary studies. Those are a favorite of mine where diary studies are great for if we want to understand someone's developing thoughts over time, because what quantitative research can't do is help you understand dynamically at how people's attitudes are changing over time. So that's like my favorite thing to see like, oh, if you're engaging with a product or you're experiencing a new service over, you know, two weeks, how do your attitudes change rather than just why do they change? So that's a favorite of mine. And so people will just give you their diary and you get to read it. Exactly. <laughs> no, we use a we use a program called DScout, and you can code in several questions each day, and you have them basically make a, a video blog, and you are responsible for setting prompts, and your participants are responding to those prompts. But it comes from an old anthropological method where people did give a steno notebook and say, "Hey, I would like for you over the course of this." half year period to let me know how you feel about this. And and it literally was a a diary. It was used in old kind of British and German anthropology. So it's cool to see some baseline anthropology methods resurfacing in in UX research. That's really cool. I love that. Yeah. So I know you kind of were getting into the realm of UX work and teams and stuff like that kind of in the pandemic. And I think you've probably been remote or had the option to be remote for the most part. Curious if you have any hot takes on 
remote versus in office work, if you have a, a preference or like what you see the benefits or the, the downsides to? Well, I feel beholden to all my fellow researchers to say that I think it's a pretty bad way to understand people just through a box and a screen. People's environments say a lot about them and their body language and the way that they respond to things in their environment. It's very hard to deduce that from a video screen or from a diary. So when it comes to research, I think that I would speak for all qualitative researchers when I would say it's the more embedded you're able to be in someone's context, the more insightful and exponentially better your feedback is going to be about how to understand and meet their needs. But that being said, when it comes to heads down work or whatever, I, I love working from home. We have an office here in New York and I go in sometimes it's not very populated. I think there's like usually two or three of us that are there. So most, most people choose to work remotely and it's, it's easier to control your schedule to manage your, a lot of us have families and manage kind of household chores. And so I'm, I'm really glad to work in a place that promotes that. But personally, I'm an extrovert. I like, I do my best work when I'm with someone else. So yeah, I would like that. I don't know that I have anything novel to say about I think everything that you could say about remote work has been said in the last two years. So that's fine. That's fine. Not to have an original take. Yeah. Yeah. The one problem, and this is what I talked to you when I visited New York, is I felt like every time I went outside, I spent $100. So I can imagine being in a city makes (laughs) makes it very hard not to spend money when you leave your house. Yeah. And, and, Ironically, I'm not sure why this is, but it's very hard to find cafe or co-working space that doesn't require like a very expensive subscription. Mortgage, yeah. Which, yeah. And, and that's fine if that's your kind of everyday, but it's weird. I, I miss the kind of 2015 era, like there were millennials were just doing work in all these cafes around the world and staying up late. And that is, that is not a good description of New York right now. (laughs) So are are you saying more people are in like going to very specific co-working space or like not working in cafes as much anymore? Those are kind of like sparsed out because of COVID and other things. I think I'm seeing a lot of cafes around say no to computers. They want it to be a more conversational space, which makes total sense sure. as a as a cafe and a place of like hopefully neighborhood camaraderie. I think I've I'm also seeing a lot of people that are investing because I think people want to go to the workplace and want to be around other people, but they don't really need to. And we're like having a hard time saying like, I'd like to just be around people for the sake of being around people. Something in us probably wants that. So I think Co-working is common, but yeah, not, not in like, not in a free way. Yeah. That's super interesting. Yeah. Another thing that you might have some valuable insight to is, you know, I know we've talked about kind of in larger companies, kind of like political realities that can impact you positively or negatively where, you know, maybe you have a really good relationship with the people you work with day to day, but for whatever reason, you know, the superiors see you in a different light or anything. I'm wondering if you can kind of give a little bit of advice or insight as to like how to navigate politics from kind of like a, a bigger hierarchy company. Yeah, that's, it's complicated because I feel like there's so much dynamism, like, and to say like it's dynamic. The space that the company is in to meet the company's goals and that always is changing and it's changing a lot more within the last year and a half just because of economic instability. And I think it's going to continue to change as we have new patterns and there's lots of new disrupting tech and there are lots of new disrupting like political and economic things going on. So the companies that we work for themselves have ever shifting goals. 
And it, it makes sense, right? They need to keep the lights on and they need to do what they need to do. Also, the team that you work on and for and with has ever-shifting goals. There are people on the team that are really overachieving and they're really stressed. Maybe they have a child that's coming and they're trying to get a promotion so that they can secure, you know, and I think there's just like some empathy to that, that helps to kind of see like, sometimes if I don't get the reaction that I want from a colleague or from a, a boss, maybe it's not towards me. Maybe it's, maybe there's a lot more complexity that's there. And then there's you, you have your own dynamism and what, what you want as you learn, like the, the craft of where you're at and as you develop goals and things that you're interested in, it's kind of on you to it, which is a big burden, right? To understand how you're changing, where you're seeing good feedback and affirmation and how you can pursue that in line with who you are professionally at work. So all of that, if I could put it in a bow, I would say, like, try to take the ego out of it. I, a lot of things come across as personal or as maybe harsh and human, but I mean, that's kind of how our business world works. I think a lot of people that are working next to you are great people who are trying their best, but a lot of us are under just circumstances that are out of our control. And it's important to realize, like, if I get rejected or if I get, you know, feedback that I wasn't expecting to try to cultivate a learning mindset and continue working towards trying to develop and learn from mistakes and sure. feedback and rejection as much as you can. So I think also, that, <laughs> no, yeah, I think that's at that, but I think that's fantastic. I think another obvious thing is like different people have such different needs and expectations in terms of how they receive feedback or how they give feedback. Some people need very precise feedback to understand what you're saying. And some yeah. people if you give really precise feedback, it like stings really hard and they would prefer a much more soft and rounded approach where it's like, I get what you're, I can read between the lines. I totally get what you're saying. You don't have to say it so specifically to like, you know, deep, dig deep into my soul about this. Right. So I think that's like one piece of like understanding your team from a, a managerial standpoint or even a coworker standpoint is like, how does this person best receive feedback or how are they both best motivated to get them, you know, to where they need to be? Yeah. I mean, my way of enjoy of appreciating feedback, the way I'd prefer it is if there's a lot of like cultural capital and trust that's been built outside of that meeting to kind of know that we're on the same page. And then when we are, when you're looking at my work, like I want to take my ego out of it as much as possible and have you just rip it to shreds and tell me because there's a lot of like very nice ways of delivering feedback. And I do not like trying to read between the lines and figure out like, is there a veiled critique here? Can you just tell me if it's bad? But yeah, I'm not yeah. like everyone. How are you? How do you like enjoying feedback? How do you like to receive it? Yeah, I think if I kind of set myself up in a way to know beforehand and prepare myself that I'm going to potentially get some constructive criticism rather than just blind praise. That really helps me beforehand, like to go into it mm. with, with that, like, this is, you know, don't be upset by this. You know, whether you think their point is completely invalid or partially valid, just take it, let it sit for a second. Don't react emotionally. Like don't let people basically have access to your anger for something that's not worth getting angry about. And for whatever reason, that person has that perspective. And you can learn a lot if you just, you know, sit on it and think on it and be like, okay, that's a fair point. I understand why you think that. Maybe there's a qualification or a reason. But yeah, like one thing that I've seen done before is, you know, someone will give a set of feedback. This is actually what a mentor told to me is, they kind of give an assessment of maybe a person's skill set or work. And they say, this is my perception of, of how you've been doing and where you're at. What I want you to do is, is tell me, you know, mark something off that's completely wrong, where you think is like unfair or, or not right. 
And it's kind of disarming because it gives the the person the ability to say like, okay, this is more of a conversation, more of like a top-down thing. It's It's like the other person being willing to say, I could have gotten something wrong here. Let me know where I'm wrong. And then we'll, we'll try to align on, you know, the shared understanding here, which I think is really powerful. But, but yeah, to your point of like, if you have someone, you know, and you trust and you know, they care about you and they're invested in you when they do have something harsh to say about a particular work deliverable, it doesn't feel as bad. It's about the work. It's not about you. Right. Yes. Yeah. And, and not to, to avoid being overly like certain about that. There are days where it's like you are proud of something and your identity is kind of like tied into your work. And that's part of all of our process, you know, by which we, we create things. So I don't, I don't think you should get caught off guard by, you know, feeling not liking criticism because no one, I don't think anyone likes it, but yeah. Yeah. Another thing that I kind of want to rewind to is talking a little bit about your port. Portfolio. Now, last time I remember we were talking, I think your portfolio that actually got you your job was was just something in Notion, right? That you linked up to your domain. And tell me a little bit about your portfolio and your strategy behind that. Yeah. Notion changed my whole life. Thank you for introducing me to it. Seriously, my digital life was so... I, I, I am like a kind of OCD person. I really feel like it's hard to start projects if I'm starting from a big mess. Things aren't organized and visually clean. And Notion took all of these, like when you're, if you're starting out in UX or you're like interviewing, there's so many one-on-ones that you have. There's so many interviews that you have. And I just had a notes doc here and a Google doc here and a word doc here and finding a way to combine all that, it was kind of central for me. And so I know that there are other tools that do a good job at it, but Notion, I just think really helped to just kind of streamline and, and optimize just a clean workspace and help me separate job opportunities and, you know, take detailed notes and put resources and help. And I ended up making that kind of like the center, my kind of, as I log into the internet, I like want to see Notion first and I want to see where I need to go. So naturally doing my portfolio there was a, was an extension. I think I, I paid somewhere. There are lots of Notion creators and they create beautiful things. If you spend a long time in Notion, you can you can really jazz it up. And so I paid someone for a portfolio template and I put everything in there. I haven't updated it in a long time, so should do that. That's all right. I, yeah, it, it works really well for me. I'm able to quickly edit and that's so nice because I don't feel like I need to go to a WordPress or to a separate site to make and save changes it's like I'm working on a live Google Doc with the world. And so I appreciate that. It's really dynamic. Yeah. So what was like your, your like, did you put a lot of time into your case studies or was it more kind of like light and, you know, let uh, kind of like dangling a carrot for them? Or like, what was your strategy on that front? Yeah. I don't think I spent as much time on the visual part of things, although I, I'm, I'm not sure the the value of that. I I think that if you were a UI designer or a UX designer, you might want to do that. For UX research, I was really trying to document my thought process. And I was really trying to show how I would see a problem and then I would connect it with a sound solution. And I would really highlight how experiences that I've had and things that I care about, you know, help me to do that well. So my goal with that was just to help maybe a research manager or a, dire- a hiring director understand that Jason has had to use a lot of flexibility in past projects and he's able to think critically and he's not someone that's going to just wait to be told and execute. He, he can help us think through and generate ideas about 
you know, what would be the best way to understand what a client is trying to get at? Yeah. What do you think, you know, qualities in a person make a good UX researcher? Yeah, there are a few of these. First off, being able to see a challenge and see it clearly. So if you look at a problem, let's say like there was an exercise company that came to Answer Lab and they were saying, we really want to open up a new market in Japan. And I got to be on the scoping call and it was really interesting because we were able to talk through, okay, if you want to understand how people think about health, there are a couple other conversations that we need to have. What, what do, what are practices that are already in place? What's the zeitgeist? What are people kind of thinking? And as we were having this conversation, there's more and more like one interesting thing that came up was I can't remember the name, but there was a Japanese exercise scientist sometime in the eighties that really emphasized metabolism. And that was like, Oh, okay. And. Someone that had done field work in Japan was able to speak to the fact that when Japanese people are working out and thinking about their own health, one thing that they're really conscious of is manipulating their metabolism. And that like totally set the scope for the study of like, okay, how can we as an exercise company help people towards that goal? If that's what's conscious yeah. for them, we don't want to just extract whatever thing we do here and implement it there. We want to start with what their needs are, what their consciousness is and build around that. So yeah, understanding like a problem and, and then solutioning on like, what would be the best way to get that information? So having like a curious spirit of like, what questions would be good to ask without asking directly? Sure. So, so there's some of that critical thinking and then also like, in sessions and when you're actually moderating, being able to like be the, the researcher, there are a ton of principles. It's kind of like similar for a bedside manner for a doctor or nurse, but being able to, if it's in the purpose of the study and make people feel like they're on a couch with you and you're in control, but we're peers and we're exploring a thing. And if you, you know, treat it too robotically, people tend to want to please you. And, you know, and, and if you are, appear maybe too informal or maybe like you're not in control of the situation, you might get bored or might not give you yeah. what you're looking for. So just developing your manner in, in executing some of that. And that it just comes with practice. That's like a confidence thing. I think the third is like, after you've solutioned on a problem and come up with a strategy for how, how do we find this information and then actually executed their research to talk to the people you need to talk to, how do you visualize that to people at different levels? So do you have some agility to say, oh, I know that the CEO of the company has these pressures. And when I go to that person, I'm going to need to address those pressures and this research in light of that. And yep. like... Do I have the context about talking to the marketing team and to the product team, to the design team and address their needs and, and let the research tell a story that is cogent to all those needs? Wow. So it sounds like a, a curious, self-aware, yeah, a curious and self-aware definitely came out. Person who understands context might be good at UX research. Yeah. Perceptive perceptive, right? Yeah. Yeah. Thinking there's probably folks out there who are maybe know a little bit about UX research or want to get into it because of, of this episode. What advice would you give someone, you know, just starting out in UX research to, you know, kind of go from zero to one? Yeah. Going from zero to one, I think in general, getting into UX, it's good to not make UX research your first thing. I think it's good to kind of have your bases covered in UX. So like we were talking about earlier, taking some time to understand the landscape, but assuming you're at that plateau, you feel comfortable enough, you know, in the UX space. The first thing that I would do is look through, there's a group called Nielsen Norman, and they do a lot of great trainings on 
just what it is to have the best practice in any kind of, and they're very comprehensive, very accessible videos and conferences and events and articles and even quizzes. And that's a great place to go to kind of like get your footing. And I think one thing that's really important early on is to understand if you UX research is divided into two columns, qualitative and quantitative. Qualitative being a lot of sitting on couches with people, having interviews with them and understanding why and the context around their decisions and their preferences. Whereas quantitative is more geared at understanding what people are doing and being able to to quantify that with numbers and say 80% of people chose to do this rather than this. And so I think getting familiar with your own internal, if you're a, if you're a systems person that loves people, but maybe not so comfortable being in, you know, 40 hours of interviews with people, maybe consider quantitative and survey design and doing card sorting and trying to understand how people's mental models connect with like a a website or a a physical space, making that distinction early on and then learning the methods that are associated with your path, I think is really important because from there you can kind of specialize and really grow. And as you get exposure, you'll know, oh, I can execute this study, but really my favorite, what what I'm good at is XYZ. And you can speak to that. Very cool. Well, Jason, this has been a fantastic talk. Thank you for all of the the insight and experience that you've shared with us. Appreciate you coming on and I will let you have the last word. Okay. Well, the last word is just about user research in general. And it's a very, very amazing thing to be involved in because I think for a long time in the product-driven capitalistic West, maybe we start with the thing that we have in abundance and we try to figure out like, how do we understand the market so that we can sell this thing to people? And user research is this very new and I think empathetic way of trying to understand people and then build around them. And, you know, the world is complex and it's frustrating now, maybe more than ever. So There are all these digital experiences that we have to go through and it can be really hair raising. So it's a fun time to be a part of this group of people that are saying, what are people's needs? What are their preferences? And how do we elevate those voices to people that are designing for them to make the world a safer, more beautiful and elegant place? Well said. Thanks, Jason. Appreciate the time. Thank you, Seth. Thanks so much for hanging out with us today on the Product Design Podcast. If you enjoyed our conversation, be sure and go follow our guests. Let them know they did a great job and you learned a lot. Um, More to come in the following weeks as we bring on new guests. Please hit that subscribe button so that you will get these podcasts uh, and learn a ton about the product design community. Excited to see you next time. Thanks.